Welcome to episode 13 of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. I'm Brian Egan from the class of 86. And before we get to today's in-depth visit with longtime English teacher and pillar of I Street, Mrs. Helen Free, I want to welcome Hazel Lychak and Jeanette Staten from the Gonzaga Mothers Club. Last year, thanks to COVID, you guys were faced with an obstacle, but you were able to pull off a very successful virtual event. Jeanette, what was that like? I was president of the Mothers Club last year, February of 2020 right before COVID. And we had started going through a big transition. We were moving all of our um, Gonzaga Mothers Club stuff from one closet to a whole different area in the school, looking at what we need for the gala. And then March 13th, I don't know what the date was. You know, once we got maybe a month into COVID, people were like, uh, okay, this isn't ending. This isn't ending. People who had galas scheduled for the spring, we're going virtual. We basically made the decision we're going to go virtual and hopefully things will change. Things will open back up and by December we'll be able to have a, you know, an in-person event, but we all know what happened there. So virtual it was. The numbers were still pretty impressive in terms of the money you guys raised. We actually raised 30,000 less than the year prior. That's incredible. It was incredible, especially because there was a lot of things that we do at our galas. Like for instance, we do these things called parties with a purpose. A family or a couple of families will get together and say, hey, I'm going to throw a party. I'm going to pay for everything. And then people sign up for the parties. And each one of those can make three to $5,000. And you can have 10 of them. So we couldn't do any of that because there wasn't any parties. People weren't going to see each other. So there was a lot of things that we lost. But because it was virtual... And because so many people were able to watch it, alumni, um, parents who wouldn't normally watch, things like that, we got to really big raise the paddle, which I think helped us a lot. And Hazel, as you look forward to what's happening uh, this coming weekend, it's a little bit of a mix. You're taking the lessons learned by Jeanette's team last year and sort of adding them onto an in-person event this year. Absolutely, we are. And everyone is so excited to be back in person that we're sold out for our in-person tickets. And that's the beauty of it. We can still offer a virtual component Mm -hmm. so that people who couldn't get a ticket or who don't feel, you know, comfortable going back in person can participate. They can bid on items and they can, you know, be part of the gala. So we're very excited. In addition to this being the earliest sellout we've ever had for the gala, I want to throw a shout out to my co-chairs, Jennifer Winters and Colleen Schreier for all the hard work that we've all done for about eight months now. Do you think the rest of the school understands that that's how long you guys work on this one night? Um, No, I don't think a lot of people do. I don't think they do. do. (laughs) Jeanette, what's the one item that if, if you were like, okay, I'm definitely going to bid on this. What would be the one thing that you've seen so far that you're like, must have? Me or is it my husband? Because we both have our own view of that. So my husband wants the Caleb Williams jersey. I don't think he will get outbid on that, but you know, don't quote me. I'm really, really liking the diamond earrings from Boone and Sons. They are beautiful. Those are our two picks. What about you, Hazel? I like the trip to Hawaii. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the beach and, uh, (laughs) you know, going to paradise. Something not huge, but the Gonzaga Neon G, because I don't have one yet. And I'm staring at one right now. Jeanette already has one. The perfect addition to entertainment room slash man cave or she shed, right? Absolutely. Now, if you want to be involved, if you want to bid virtually, we've got a link in the show notes. And the website is... Gonzaga.org backslash gala. We also have previews and everything listed on our Instagram, which is at Gonzaga Mothers. 
and on our Facebook. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. Congratulations to both of you on all the hard work. Hope you raise more money than ever. And thanks for continuing to raise the bar for Gonzaga, ladies. Thank you. As Gonzaga marks its bicentennial, there's much to celebrate, including the women who have contributed to educating the young men of I Street. In fact, the first woman to ever command a Gonzaga classroom was the late Ann Kelly, the mom of Mike Kelly from the class of 71. And at the end of the 2020-2021 school year, many longtime pillars of I Street took their final bows and retired. Included in that distinguished group, a woman, a longtime fixture in the English department, Helen Free. Now, I didn't know when we began our chat a few weeks ago that her father, Al Turner, was a Gonzaga grad, class of 48. I imagine many of you who were her students likely never knew that either. But after you hear this visit with Mrs. Free, I think you'll understand why. Along her journey, Helen had two sons go through Gonzaga. Teaching at the same school where your children attend is complicated. How did Mrs. Free approach the challenge with Timothy and Gabe and keep her dual roles separate? It wasn't always easy. And how did Helen view parent-teacher conferences? What advice would she offer parents? And who inspired her to believe in herself and pushed her to get her master's? And what does she hope for Gonzaga's future? All those answers and more are ahead in a very wide-ranging and personal conversation with my former teacher, Helen Free. Now, a note, there's a small audio annoyance, kind of a metal chair type squeak in the next eight minutes or so, but we figure out what it is and solve it. It does go away. What won't go away, if you give us the next 30 minutes or so, will be your appreciation of how hard Helen Free pushed herself and her students across 38 years to make sure everyone always gave their best. I grew up in PG County, Camp Springs, Maryland, between Andrews Air Force Base and and the district, in a kind of nondescript little place. I went to St. Philip the Apostle grade school. I went to the University of Maryland undergrad. I majored in speech and drama education and I minored in English, graduated in 75. I started teaching at St. Jude's in Rockville, seventh grade, where I learned to teach basically, because you know, a grade school teacher, you teach everything, right? You know, I taught religion. I think I was the gym teacher for my class. I did that for three glorious years. And like I said, I learned to teach because it was like, okay, every 30 minutes you had to do something else. So I learned to be organized and love those kids. But, you know, I just, I wanted to teach older kids. So I taught at Seton after that. So I taught all girls for about four years. So the pivot from Seton to Gonzaga, what put Gonzaga on your radar? My father went to Gonzaga. He was in the class of 48. No kidding. I don't think I ever knew that. No kidding. What's the maiden name? Turner. His name's Al Turner. He just passed a couple of years ago. Of course, I, you know, I grew up hearing all about Gonzaga. I must admit, though, I was a little hesitant because of this roughhouser. I would go to a football game at McNamara to watch my brother play. Somebody on the St. John's or Gonzaga bus, I can't really remember now, would moon you. you know? <laughs> so it, oh my God, like these boys are crazy. I'm, I'm not touching that. I'm happy at Seton. But eventually, you know, I got over that. Although when I did start at Gonzaga, it, was, it wasn't the Wild West, but um, it was very different from where it is now. It's funny. I would have never known you to be a legacy and you are. Yes. Um, so what specifically inspired the move from Seton to Gonzaga? I was married to Larry Harden and he got a job as the art teacher at Gonzaga. And so I started going there for things and meeting everybody. And so they knew I taught at Seton. And so I already knew the headmaster. I knew 
other teachers. So when someone kind of the last minute wasn't able to return to Gonzaga, I was a no, they knew me. So when you made that move, did you have any idea that you would spend almost four decades teaching on I Street? 38 years. I was thinking about this before we talked. Was there ever a time when I thought about doing anything else? And it was, I liked it too much. And I grew to love the place. You know, I would never understand why someone would leave something that they liked. And it kept changing. The place changed. My colleagues changed. I, thank God, changed. <laughs> and, um, I never thought about leaving. Every fall, when a new group of students enters Mrs. Free's class, what did you have in mind? What did you hope that they would have accomplished by the time they wrap up at the end of that school year? You know, at the beginning, because I'm teaching with almost all men, there was no woman in, in the depart- English department for decades. It was so concerned about being smart that I, I wanted them to know things. I just wanted them to know material, to know it well, to know it not at a superficial level. But it was mostly me kind of giving them that. I eventually realized this isn't the way to go here. I, and so my goals became a lot more personal for them. Whether they had an A, a B, or a C, I wanted them to feel strong enough to go to college and be able to raise his hand in the classroom and be able to confidently make a comment about something. Have an opinion. <laughs> if you have a claim, offer evidence. So I wanted that kind of, not only their a kind of personal strength in their own intellectual ability and their own sense of, well, my opinion has some value. I wanted them to understand the difference between mediocre work and a finer product. I, that's, that's one of the things Boyd say to me all the time in the last, you know, several years, the last 15 years, which I think were my better years. And that is that they know the difference between mailing it in and working on the craft of writing and writing for themselves and for an audience, not for me. And, and I kept saying, you're saying this because you think I want to hear this. And I really don't. And I don't think they believe me for a long time, but by the end of the year, they do. That's, that's what I want. It, their independence and confidence and their critical sense about what they've read, what they've written so that they, they're walking on their own. One of the technological changes that took place in the last few years is the ability for teachers now to really know whether their students have been plagiarizing. It makes it much tougher for students really to come up with original ideas. Did you embrace this technology? How did you deal with this? Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned it because turnitin.com, I mean, everybody was saying, why don't you use turnitin.com? I like, I don't know. I hate technology. I don't, I don't want to bother. I can tell usually if somebody's ripped something off. I didn't want to deal with it. So I thought, forget about all this nonsense. I'm going to change the assignments so that I don't want an assignment about the something that I know they're going to get from, see, in our day, it was Cliff's Notes. I think it's Spark Notes now and God knows what else. But I, I changed the assignments. Let's take Gatsby for an example. So we read the novel. We've already talked about the nuances in every chapter. So why would I have you do a paper about that? Why would I ask you to write a paper on Daisy and, and Gatsby? Because I can't, I just couldn't stand another word about that. I call these launch papers. What piqued your curiosity? So we'd have this five minute, 10 minute meeting where they pitch their idea and you get things like, I was wondering why Tom Buchanan is so aggressive. And I was wondering if there's anything to do with the fact that he played football at Yale. That's a great question. This is a recent paper. And the student discovered that college football was brutal in 1923. Indeed, he could have had a zillion concussions. You were a sissy if you wore a leather cap. I mean, it was a great paper. He benefited from discovering that. It was his idea 
I loved it. I learned something. I go nuts over stuff like that. Again, what are we asking students to do and why are we asking them to do that? So I, I just flipped it. I just changed. So if we read something like that, I don't give the traditional kinds of papers that I gave when I started teaching, that's for sure. And then we do the memoir essay. You know, they think, oh, well, I don't know. I, nothing memorable ever happened in my life. And I said, that's not what a memoir essay is. So look, you get out of bed in the morning, something has happened that you want to think about or put in a different context. And they kick and scream and their <laughs> pitches. So we have writing therapy and I just pummel them with questions and we find their story. We find the story they want to tell. I'm going to ask a, a slightly weird question. When you're moving, I'm hearing a rattle. I don't know if it's the table. It's a phone and it's up on, it's against a metal box. If you have just a dish towel that you can just sit, I think it's the metal on metal, maybe. Your stories are amazing. Is that better? I don't hear it now. Good. Any other pitches that you received that you thought were just so original? One of those don't write about the great Gatsby Gatsby papers. Because <laughs> so I have them read a lot of contemporary articles about Gatsby. And so one article is, oh, this is the book that everyone has to read. It's the quintessential American novel, da, 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 da. Everyone, you know, can identify with Gatsby. And this one student said, Miss Ray, I, I just want to do my... I can't identify with him. And I said, well, it's probably a really good thing. <laughs> and he said, but my father read the book. Can I interview my dad and ask him what he remembers about the book and why he thinks it's a classic? So he interviews his dad as this paper. And not only does he get to hear his father talk about this and record it, then the student takes in what his father said and agrees with some of it and disagrees with some of it. It was wonderful to read this. And I think it was a good experience for the dad and like the student. Magic, you know, <laughs> things that you would never, if everyone's writing the same paper, that doesn't happen. So that's great. Is there anything from the canon of what, you know, you talk about the great Gatsby, there, there's these books that are just supposed to be part of the curricula of English in high school. Is there any books that you wish could have been swapped out over your time or that you were glad that maybe they did get swapped out, that this new piece of writing came in and replaced this work that everybody had written papers about to death? Was there anything you were pleased to see evolve there? That's such a good question. Uh, <laughs> has it evolved? It, it has evolved. And it's funny that you, you mentioned this because let me just step back for a second. So when I started in 1983, junior year English, we were reading Sister Carrie, 600 pages, The Grapes of Wrath, 600 pages. Um, I remember a mom saying, these books are rather depressing. I don't think the boys were actually reading 600 pages either. So, and we were kind of, you know, up in arms a little bit. And then we thought, yeah, they really are. Like, and so we did something about it. We got rid of them. Fast forward today. Yes, more inclusive things. But this year, the English department is taking a pass on The Great Gatsby. I was like, okay, I, I really oppose this. It's If you teach it as a dopey love story between two loser idiots, then yeah, it's worthless. But come on, this is about a toxic man. I mean, Tom Buchanan, not Gatsby. He's just out to lunch. It's about class. It is about oppression of George Wilson and the lower class, where Tom Buchanan, who's clearly representative of the 1%, crushes anyone who even wants to make a couple of bucks selling puppies on the street. Like it's, So I think looking at that attitude is very, very interesting these days, but it, it's disappearing. Your pal Holden Caulfield is gone this year. I don't know if we're swinging too far. Maybe, maybe not. There's a good committee. I'm sure they'll, they'll figure it out. 
I mean, it's always good to take looks every couple of years, of course, but uh, we will have a, a class of juniors who will go to college and maybe someone's talking about Gatsby or alluding to Gatsby and they won't know what, what the reference is. Well, the nice thing about making changes is you can always then make more changes. All right, let's talk about the changes in just the feel of the campus. What struck you as you left Gonzaga in 2021 in terms of a difference from when you began back in 1983? The image I have in my head from 1983, this first couple of years, is the faculty parking lot. You pull in between the church and Cantwell, which is now this lovely commons where, you know, people sit under trees and feed grapes to each other. Okay, it's not like that. It's practically, it seems like it's like I was on campus for reunion weekend. I, I got to see a little bit of it. So I, I know what you mean. So boys would change classes from Cantwell. We didn't have Ruish then because that was still Notre Dame when I got there, right? You know, to go over to uh, Coleman, I guess, or the or Carmody. People would be, you know, slinging their backpacks at each other and punching. It was very physical, the guys, when they were relating to each other. I mean, I'm not talking about a serious fight. I'm talking about rough housing. And that's how they express their affection or friendship or something. <laughs> I didn't like walking. Like I didn't know I was going to get hit by mistake. And anyway, so it was just kind of wild nowadays, arms around each other. I mean, it's just, it's just a different kind of expression of friendship. It's really quite lovely and a lot safer, I would say. That 1994 documentary that Ash Hawkins did on Gonzaga, you really see that vibe in the students as they're exiting classes, exactly as you described. Let's talk a little bit about the administration back in the early days and and what changed over the years. Take me back to some of your earliest encounters with uh, Dr. Joe Cangolini. But Joe Cangolini brought, because I believe he started as the admissions director and then he was named headmaster and honest to god he he just took us up uh so many levels he introduced the sabbatical program which i benefited from he's the one who said everybody has to have a master's degree in 10 years and he literally drove me to the gates of georgetown where i i found the english department walked into the chairman's office and asked if i could be in the program i didn't apply i never took the gres thank God, because I wouldn't have a degree at this point. It was that kind of time period. It was so interesting. And he asked us to do that. Most of us took advantage of it. I mean, the school paid half. It was a way as an institution for them to say, we believe in you. We want you to get better. Magis, more. Yeah. It's like, we want to push you. And so that certainly helped me you know, push students more. I mean, it was just win, 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 win. And he, you know, he was aware of, hey, we need more women in the school. So he hires, you know, Carol Corgan. He hires Seton, comes in from Trinity College. All of a sudden, it, it's, just, it's just a healthier, better place. And it's not that it was awful before. It's just he just saw the moment and took us to where we needed to be. It's fascinating. I go back and I look through those older yearbooks and I see people like Mrs. Reed in the mathematics department. The feminine touch at the school at the time seemed to be most present in Opal Bell and in Mrs. Mulholland in the president's uh, office and, and people like Mary Ellen Whitcomb. And did you ever worry about being sort of thrust into the role of acting like someone's mom for a moment or two in the classroom? Or is that something you resisted? Brian, this is... Uh... I'm going to be careful how I say this. Um, I felt as if I was stepping into the big leagues when I when I came to Gonzaga. 
the last thing I felt at the time that I wanted to be was somebody's mother. I felt that I, I was a professional woman and that's not necessarily the same. There were the mom types. I remember there was a, a staff member who actually had the word mom on her door and I would just sort of cringe. I was like, you're making this harder for everybody else. Betty Reed, you mentioned her. And uh, honestly, she's, you know, she, I've got the white hair that she had, right? You know, was she, was she a mom figure or was she a smart woman who just was, was friendly and welcoming and could laugh and give five guys a ride home in her Volkswagen or whatever? You know, <laughs> Does that make her a mom figure? I, that is a word that I kind of fought an image I, I fought personally because I, I just didn't think it was really, really healthy. I thought that you could be, I wouldn't say that my male colleagues were dad figures. Do you know what I mean? So I, I really struggled with that. Now, even though the term mom is something you obviously fought, you probably at least once or twice had to at least put on a mom type hat to help a student who was struggling with some issue. Absolutely. I mean, the intimate and personal stories that I've heard over the years are, I mean, they're many fold. I guess I'm just trying to find the word between a compassionate listener and available adult without using the word mom. <laughs> I Maybe it's just a... That's fair. <laughs> you, you did end up having two of your children matriculate through Gonzaga. That presents its own challenges as they're deciding, or was it really already decided for them by, you know, seventh or eighth grade, you're going to Gonzaga, or was that their choice? They both wanted to. I wasn't quite sure. My Timothy, um, we weren't 100% sure they would get in. I never took that for granted, but they were very, very different boys. And maybe this will, this, this is my conflict. Maybe this will help you understand this mom thing. May I tell the story? Yeah, go for it. So Timothy had no boundaries. I did not teach him. I taught Gabe junior year, but I did not ever have Tim officially in the classroom. And yet he would come into my classroom anytime he wanted to, because he blurred the mom teacher line, right? Most of the time it was, can I have two bucks? So it's no problem to keep teaching, reach in my purse, hand him two bucks and he's gone. Right. So I have, a, I have 30 other juniors in the classroom. He just walks in and he says, mom, can I go to Philadelphia tonight for Dave Matthews concert with Miguel Corapecki? Okay, I was, I was stuck. So I want to be the cool teacher. Right? I mean, I want to be the teacher that I'm accessible. You can, you know, da, da, da. 30 kids are looking at me as a mom. What is she going to do? And so all of a sudden my mask, my roles got all screwed up and I had this audience of kids who were like, oh, I think they thought, which is what I thought that it was a pretty outlandish request, right? It was a school night. I remember this just being absolutely stuck for a few minutes. All right. Now I'm actually feeling anxious for you. You want to know what I said? Oh, it, <laughs> the podcast would not be complete if we didn't resolve this. I, I wanted to be a cool mom, but I was horrified at, at you know, but okay, the only thing that saved him, I did let him go because Miguel Corapecki was the most responsible kid I knew. <laughs> 
And if his mom let him do it, then I was okay. So I don't know. I don't know what those kids thought or anything. I was just like, oh, why did this happen? Your son, Timothy, graduated in 99. There's an 11-year gap there. Gabriel Free graduated in 2010. And you actually did have to teach him in the classroom. <laughs> Had you mellowed at this point because you've been on campus a while? What was it like the second time around? I'm sure I mellowed, but we'll get, you know, okay. So Gabe's in the classroom. I can picture exactly where he sat. He and I would discreetly nod to each other when he walked in the room. And I mean discreetly. And he would sit down. I don't think I ever called on him that I can recall. I don't think he ever raised his hand. I made it a point. I was so obsessed with not showing any kind of familiarity or favoritism. I ignored him. I was so busy trying to focus on his hooligan friends who were in the classroom at the time, the, the rugby and football guys, that I, I just had no time for game. Now, he did. I did ask him this recently. I said, what was it like being in my class? Because I knew that we were going to talk. And he said, well, mom, um, it, was, he was, it was good. He said, I will say that it's the only time I ever read all my books for English class. <laughs> so, yay, I had an effect on him. I relate to what you're talking about because I think my mom went through that as well. She was my teacher as well as my siblings at Little Flower Grade School in Bethesda. There is this sense that you almost want to overcompensate against your kids in a way. I don't know. I just felt this, I'm sure, an overdeveloped sense of fairness or something that was probably absurd, but at, at any rate. Now, do you recall any papers or any tests where Gabriel's submitting something to you and you're now getting an insight into your own child's mind that you didn't get before. It did occur to me that he was rather bright, <laughs> that he had a good, every once in a while, maybe it was the Gatsby paper or something, it was just when I did the traditional papers that he gets it. He's insightful. Isn't that nice? I used it to justify uh, me letting him watch The Simpsons at an early age and see Adam Sandler movies. I thought, see, it all paid off. He is insightful. He got it all from that. That is funny. That's a good question. I like that question. Let's talk next about parent-teacher conferences. How did Helen Free approach them? And did you evolve your approach over the 38 years on I Street? Parents would sit down. There were two types. If their son was not doing particularly well, and these days, not doing particularly well is a B because they always got A's their whole entire life or something. And I was just, okay. So the, there's the parent who thinks the world is, everything's falling apart, all their dreams and hopes. They react out of fear, fear of some sort of loss. At some point I realized they're just afraid and they're afraid at the moment and their fears are out of control. And this can be fixed for God's sake. It's October. <laughs> Let's win. And I always believed, I don't think I ever had a student who didn't grow, who didn't, who didn't get better. So it was either then I just, just framed it as a, it's just the case of, I prefer to handle my own students and tutor my own, not tutor, but, you know, have students see me for help rather than outside people. So let's just have the person see me more often. It always worked. The student gets more confident. He gets to know me. I get to know him. Keep the parent out of it. Let me do my work. And let the student do his work. And let's keep all the anxiety out of the picture. And usually that took care of it. It wasn't always easy to relax people. Sometimes it took another session with the student himself. But I can't think of where the, the end of the year was adversarial or 
you know, somebody wasn't happy. All right, let's talk about another role that you took great pride in, and that was the annual speech contest. As someone who did pretty well at that back in the day, I remember vividly how seriously you took it. You won the speech contest? Freshman year. And I wonder if over the years, when one of your students would place or win, would that be a bragging point in the teacher's lounge? I think other teachers may be doing that, but I had such confidence in my students that I didn't have to do that. <laughs> okay, now that I, I don't have to face my colleagues, um, yeah, was I in it to win? Absolutely. I love those few weeks of the speech contest. It was really, really fun. What I remember you teaching us was there was so much subtle technique in giving a good speech What's something that if a student's listening right now and never got to have Mrs. Free as their teacher that you would want to tell them if they're getting ready to maybe make a pitch in front of a boardroom this next week? Here's my big thing. Somebody asked me, what's one thing you want your students to remember? What I want them to remember is that your speech begins the moment you leave your seat. People are watching you. You drag yourself to the podium. I'm not going to listen to you. You're glad handing everybody. I'm going to think, I don't know, is this person serious? One of my favorite things is try to get them to understand the difference between a, a well-written speech. I said, I don't even want to see your speech. I want to hear your speech. Your delivery carries something to the audience. So I used to use this analogy about a pizza. I said, do you want your pizza delivered at the curb of your house or do you want it handed to you? I said, we're like the audience. You know, We want you to deliver, bring your speech, bring your words, bring your ideas to the audience. What is your biggest hope for the school as it goes on into this next mm -hmm. era, passing 200 years, as you enter retirement and enjoy your this time in your life? What are you hoping for these kids and for the school? I feel as if Gonzaga regenerates itself all the time. We have some new teachers in the school, new, they've been there five years already, who are seeing the need for certain things. For example? Caitlin Farley, she saw the need that, hey, you know, we're great, we're doing well, but I see a hole here and we need more positivity and things for students to do that creates camaraderie, school spirit, et cetera, et cetera, and not just cheering at a football game, but some other things, some additional things. I think when people ask, hey, I see a kind of need here, the administration listens then we move forward again. We keep taking another step forward. I don't see us ever going backwards. If current personalis is our vision and soul of the school, care for the whole person, then it, of course, it only makes sense to keep looking at that and saying, what are we missing? What are we missing? And then it's not just about your grades or your, your athletic ability. I mean, when you think about the clubs we have now, Unity Club, for gay students and friends, Lasso for um, Latin American students, all kinds of, I mean, we have another new position. I think the title is director of sports and sports culture. And to make sure that even in the sports world where you have coaches who don't necessarily teach at the school, where everyone is on board with this understanding of Jesuit education and whether it's in, in the classroom, sports fields, of course, retreats and all of that. That's a great step forward. When you teach English on I Street for 38 years, no doubt some of the kids that you taught are going to go on to have successful careers in writing. Is there any students that you remember that you take special pride in the success that they've had in their fields? It's really cool when you, when you have a student who's a writer and then they become a journalist like Brody Mullins. Uh, Marcus Washington, 
I taught Marcus. Marcus taught Gabriel. Marcus went on to Washington Jesuit Academy and is now, you know, head there and just delivered, uh, sorry, the Coleman address at the last graduation. And I uh, just think the world of him. Uh, he, he, um, he helped Gabe so much. And uh, that, that pride, and it's not a mother's pride, <laughs> it's the professional, personal, friend, all kinds of other things, pride. I have in him, uh, his address is remarkable. If you can, anyone wants to listen to it, get your hands on it. He's, he's a special person. Someone so wonderful launches and just, and, and I will say, and this is the thing about Gonzaga, it's like Joe Changlini helped me. He helped Bill Whitaker. Bill Whitaker helped Marcus. It's just this ladder of reaching out where you pay attention to people who have something special and you know that they can give back. So think of all the people at Washington Jesuit Academy that, you know, Bill and, and Marcus and, and their, their staff, whose lives they have enriched. And that's truly, I believe, the ripple effect that Gonzaga's had over 200 years, touching people's lives, inspiring them to do more. Before we wrap up, I've been sitting on this audio. I, I didn't know when I was going to spring it on you, but it feels like now's the right time. I asked Dave Konchik from the class of 94, Dave, give me the first thing that pops into your head when I say the name Mrs. Helen Free. And here's what Dave said. Uh, she made the best lasagna I think I ever had until my wife's lasagna. <laughs> and I'm like, how do you know that? Senior year, a couple of us got to go over to the Freeze house for dinner. We got to eat her lasagna and it was unbelievably delicious. It's sort of a white sauce. It was like a Northern Italian lasagna. So I'm sure she taught me lots of great English too. <laughs> do you remember having students over for stuff like that absolutely not i have no idea where i i would have students over unless they were maybe the newspaper staff you know somebody you're you're close with you're tight with the whole year no that is so funny i have no recollection of that but it's a bechamel yes you need the bechamel in a bolognese sauce <laughs> Well, thank you so much for the time. I was looking at the 85 yearbook. There's a great picture of myself with Mark Shaheen collecting money for some dance and you're standing there with us. We all looked a lot younger. And I, I think about running track and cross country back in the day with Tucker Colley and Will Michella. And it's just so great that you were able to have such an incredible tenure. Thank you for all you gave to Gonzaga over the years. You just mentioned Michella and Shaheen, Mark Shaheen. I have taught both of their sons. And if there has been anything that has been an incredible blessing and privilege, it is that to have taught the sons of former students. Strangely, a lot of them look just like their dads, but they must act like their moms because they're little angels. Well, thank you <laughs> for the time. Um, thank you for the time and this, uh, this labor of love that you're doing. Brian, this is really a gift to the school. All the best. Cheers. Thank you. That concludes our visit with Helen Free. So many great takeaways. Anyone in education, you, you might want to share this episode with them. Helen's story will give them great insight, too, into how different things were and also how to inspire new approaches when you're dealing with familiar material. All right, looking ahead to episode 14, next week, we examine Gonzaga's founding fathers. 
Coleman and Matthews through the eyes of Tim Now from the class of 61. Now, we all know the name Coleman from Coleman Hall, the Coleman Address, but who was Father Anthony Coleman, the man? And why is he such a fascinating figure, not just in early American educational history, but also for his major role in advancing his vision of Catholicism in that era? Tim will share. And who was that other, lesser-known founding father of the Washington Catholic Seminary? The school's second president, Father William Matthews. Tim explains why he believes these two very opposite men in motives, temperament, and vision are the combined reason why the Washington Catholic Seminary survived to become Gonzaga. And there's no bicentennial celebration without both those men. Look for the Gonzaga Founding Fathers episode next week. Still would love to get more holiday shout-outs from wherever around the world you're listening right now. Just send us a voice memo. The instructions are in the show notes. Also, if you're looking for the links for the auction items for the Mother's Club Gala, they are in there too. Now, if you're catching this on Apple Podcasts, would love for you to tap that five-star rating. And if you have a moment, you don't mind, leave a written review. It helps us with the algorithms. And be sure to follow, subscribe, and share the Echo Ever Proudly podcast with anyone who you know loves Gonzaga. Until next time, ad maiorium dei gloriam, and hail Gonzaga. Martin.